The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Malvern, Chester County. In 1777, one of the most controversial moments of the American Revolution took place here at Paoli Tavern. 200 years later, the controversy still remains, and many refer to the Battle of Paoli as the Paoli Massacre. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Paoli is archaeologist Matt Kalos and historian Greg Irwin. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Tell us a little bit about your background. So I come to this subject a little bit differently as a archeologist, where in a lot of cases, we're looking for the material remains of these battles that are taking place. And many military archeologists tend to look at the military maps and say, okay, can we find these men on the battlefield? But the goal of my dissertation and what I'm working on with my PhD is to try and relate the battle to the greater community and understand how conflict affects more than just the combatants and really does affect the entire community. And as you mentioned, the Paoli battlefield and the Paoli massacre is a controversial um, conflict. And so what we're trying to understand is really, you know, what role or what impact has that, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of battle influenced on the greater community because the battle cry, Remember Paoli, has been around for over 200 years. So how has that then affected the community? Greg? I'm a professor of history at Temple University, um, the immediate past president of the Society for Military History, and I edit a book series for the University of Oklahoma Press uh, called Campaigns and Commanders. Uh, I'm going to work on a project about the American Revolution, the 1781 British invasions of Virginia. Let's talk about Philadelphia during this time period. What kind of a city was Philadelphia in the 18th century? Well, it was uh, one of the largest cities in the British Empire. I believe it was the largest in North America or the 13 colonies. It was a thriving uh, commercial port uh, from its Quaker foundings, which stressed pluralism. It, it drew immigrants from all over Europe. And these turned out to be industrious, hardworking, ingenious people. Quakers especially were good, good merchants, so it was a, it was a thriving concern, uh, at least before the war. I think, too, that it's important to think about Philadelphia as, you know, a hub of commerce. It was located on the Delaware River, which was, you know, a big, big factor for why so many people came to Philadelphia. Um, the diversity that Gregory mentioned was also important, that this idea of pluralism that Penn founded was really what drew many people here for religious freedom as well as economic freedom and as well as political freedom. And of course it was the capital of the young United States which made it a natural target. Yes. Now it was the capital, all these things are important. Compared to other cities, was it heavily defended or not so much? Well it was a difficult city to defend uh, because it lay on a river rather than in a regular bay. Uh, and there were all kinds of different ways at which you could get it uh, to come from the north. In fact, the British toyed with that. And then they, in the end, decided to come up from the south via Chesapeake Bay. Uh, so it's, um, the situation makes it, makes it difficult to defend. Difficult to defend, but also if you look at the route that the British actually took when they attacked the city, I think that tells you something about what the Delaware River was like as a barrier between New Jersey and Pennsylvania 
And the fact that the British sailed up the Chesapeake as opposed to coming directly up the Delaware River tells you that there were some formidable defenses in that river with Fort Mifflin and Red Bank as well. Yes. As a quick catch up, could we talk about the state of the revolution in 1777? Well, the war had been raging for two years. Um, things started well with Lexington and Concord and the capture of Ticonderoga, uh, but then the Patriot effort to capture Canada comes to nothing. Uh, the British sweep into New York and uh, sweep across New Jersey. Uh, Washington rebounds though with Trenton and Princeton. Uh, when 1777 opens, there's a British army attempting to march down along the Lake Champlain Hudson uh, Valley invasion route from Canada. And uh, Howe uh, is in a position to strike at Philadelphia or anywhere else along the East Coast. So I would say the revolution was in a state of high suspense. Especially with uh, Burgoyne's army marching towards Albany, trying to cut off, you know, Washington to the west to the rebellious men and women in, in Boston. So, you know, having them, Burgoyne take Albany and if Howe were to succeed in taking Philadelphia, many looked at that as a decisive way to quickly end the war. By this point in the war, September 1777 though, Burgoyne's campaign is coming to grief uh, in front of the heights of Saratoga. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not known at this time down here at Philadelphia. Uh, and so Howe is the only British general in a position to really administer what could be a knockout blow. By today's standards, we look at uh, the past in hindsight. A lot of people don't understand how desperate the revolution was at times. How would the general citizen, person living in this area, how would they would have felt about the revolution at well, this time? I think it, it really speaks to perspective in a lot of cases because we tend to now, like you said, in hindsight, look at the revolution as everyone was a patriot. But especially in southeastern Pennsylvania with the diversity that we talked about earlier, there were still many loyalists around. Um, and speaking to, to this battle as well, that's one of the controversies is how did the British find out of where the Americans were camped? And, you know, their own spy network within southeastern Pennsylvania was pervasive. So, you know, that diversity of political allegiances was, was strongly felt at this time. And if you're a civilian living in a war zone, regardless of your political affiliation, you are a potential victim. Mm -hmm. Both armies are rapacious. They're filled with young men who aren't getting enough to eat for all the calories they're burning, and so they plunder, they pillage. Uh, Washington, in fact, issues repeated orders that the, the wooden fences marking the boundaries of farmers' property not be torn down because that just opens the fields to, to animals uh, who could destroy the crops. Uh, so both armies are, are a blight on the land. It's important you mention that, Greg. What condition was Washington's army in 1777? Well, it's a different kind of army than from the first two years. During the first two years when we had one-year enlistments, that army came closest to the embattled farmer uh, stereotype that, that we Americans cherish. But in the fall of 1776, Washington convinces Congress he needs troops that are enlisted for three years or the duration. So they don't walk away after a year after they've just learned everything they need to know. So he has a long-term force. That means, though, that there's a change in class structure. The officers still tend to come from the, the upper sort or the middling sort, uh, but a lot of the enlisted men are poorer. Uh, many of them are young, some are runaway apprentices, some are runaway sons. Uh, there are also a number of, of, of blacks who will claim to be free, uh, but many of them are trying to escape uh, the limitations of their previous lives as well. On the other side, we have William Howe. We have the British Empire. Uh, what's their army like? The British Army is a regular volunteer force. Uh, it's highly trained. Up until 1775, most of its personnel had not been in action, except for some of the officers. Uh, but now it's, it's been uh, dealing with North American uh, conditions uh, for two years. Howe is a veteran of the French and Indian War. He was a light infantry commander. Uh, and he strips his army down, and he teaches it to fight in open order, teaches it to operate in a rough wooded country. Uh, the uniforms are simplified. These are, are tough fast-moving, fast-thinking troops, highly confident in their own abilities and contemptuous of their enemies. They see the American cause as valid as we would see ISIS, and they kind of view their enemies in the same way we would view uh, 
uh, radical Islamic terrorists today. I think it's also important to consider the role that Hessians were playing during the revolution, where these were essentially hired mercenaries. And the perspective, not just of you know, how they entered battle themselves, but then how do the Americans react to them? That this isn't, you know, for the most part, you can look at the American Revolution as almost a civil war, right? Where you have British colonists, essentially the Americans, fighting for their independence from the crown. And then you have this extra group of the Hessians that don't really fit into this conversation as we often would like to think about it. Can we explore that notion of the American Revolution as a civil war a little bit? I think that's really an interesting way of looking at it. The British viewed it as a civil war. Uh, you know, it wasn't like there was a fully defined and articulated American nationalism. Yeah, Americans were a little different uh, from uh, people from London, but, but so were people from Cornwall and, and Northumberland. Uh, and, and the British, uh, even officers who had uh, sympathized with the American stand on taxes, could not understand why they would want to rebel. They're living in a land that is really affluent. Uh, the average American is much more prosperous than the, the average Briton. And, and British officers feel a tremendous sense of betrayal when the war breaks out. And, and a lot of them really want hard line. If they were alive today, they'd be talking about carpet bombing. Back then they were talking about burn every town along the coast. Let's teach them the price of rebellion. And you see that in what Howe writes about a lot, too, where he doesn't necessarily understand. He, he's viewing this as a civil war. These people are like, I'm... I am. This is the, we have the same identity. We share the same language. We share the same economic perspectives. Yes, the idea of taxation, like Greg just mentioned, you know, they might not have as hard a line of stance as the early patriots, but at the same time, these are British. They view themselves as British citizens almost. I think that's a good point to talk about Philadelphia as a target. Uh, what were some of the attractions to capturing Philadelphia? Was it a play to end the war? Well, yeah, Howe, uh, uh, Sir, uh, by, by this time he's Sir William Howe, he was knighted for his victories uh, in the previous year taking New York. Howe likes Americans. Um, he wants to end the war as quickly as possible with as little bloodshed as possible. So he, he's looking to win a victory that will convince his enemies that they can't win, that will bring them to the peace table. And he, he, he thought he had done that the previous year, but the rebellion survived. Washington made sure it survived with his counterattacks at Trenton and Princeton. So now Howe wants to, to do something symbolic, something significant, and taking the rebel capital, taking Philadelphia, uh, would seem to fit that bill. Well, typically in European wars, if you capture the capital, you win the war. Um, and I think that's what sets the American Revolution apart, is the fact that, you know, as long as Washington had an army and the Congress was fleeing further west to Lancaster and New York, they had the ability to continue fighting. So it wasn't necessarily the state, so to speak, or the capital that was, you know, wasn't and didn't end up being the massive victory that Hal expected. The, the, the society is not as centralized right. as our urbanized society is. So if you're a farmer in Lancaster and the British take Philadelphia, well, that's bad news, but I can still grow a crop and take care of my family. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily break, break the spirit of, of the uh, patriots. Greg, you mentioned modern warfare, ISIS. Uh, Americans took Baghdad relatively quickly. The war goes on for another decade. Americans took Kabul very quickly, another capital city. The war is still going on. Can we draw a parallel to that here? Well, it's, it's funny because in uh, uh, American war colleges and staff colleges where our future generals and admirals are being trained today, there's a lot more sympathy for the British and the American Revolution because we faced a similar situation in Iraq. Yeah, we won the battles whenever they stood and fought. We rolled over them, but then they went to guerrilla warfare and put up an extended resistance that was bleeding us and bleeding us. And Americans were asking, when is this going to be over? We're the mightiest country in the world. Uh, you know, uh, why aren't we beating these folks? Uh, how, how much is this going to cost? Those same questions are being asked in England. Not everybody in England is in favor of the war. And the longer it goes, uh, the more upset and more disenchanted, more and more Englishmen grow. I think that's why it's important to be a student of history, right? Because there's always going to be parallels between what's happening today and the past. So specifically with military history, obviously what, what happened here over 200 years ago, we can see parallels today in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places across the world. Could we talk about Washington's efforts to stop the British from taking Philadelphia at Brandywine, for example? 
Well, Washington, uh, you know, he's a general, but he's also well aware of the politics of the war. And uh, there are certain pieces of ground he cannot afford to lose, or at least he can't afford to lose it without a fight. Uh, and uh, the capital, Philadelphia, is one of them. I mean, his army uh, is the servant of Congress. Congress sits in Philadelphia. Congress does not want to be uh, forced into flight. So he is watching throughout the, the spring and summer of 1777, trying to guess Howe's intentions. And once Howe reveals his hand, then Washington will move his army to, to what he considers a, a defensible position, uh, put a creek in front of himself, a moat, uh, put his troops on high ground, and hope that uh, terrain will help to uh, compensate him for the fact that he's probably outnumbered, and also his troops probably aren't of the same quality of the enemy. It, again, it's reconnoitering the, the landscape, so to speak, where, like Greg mentioned, it's putting that creek there is, is an important barrier. Um, you know, it, it was September. It was September 11th. It was hot. It was humid. Um, and it was basically one of the largest battles of, of the revolution. And when you have nearly 30,000 men in conflict in arms, that, that's a long arduous fight and um, I think that's what Brandywine is notorious for. And he loses. He does. Uh, uh, Sir William Howe with uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis, they uh, go on a wide flanking arc uh, and come crashing down on his right. Uh, he throws a lot of units in their way to try to delay them so he can pull the rest of his army out. Uh, there's an extended firefight. Uh, the Americans are finally evicted from the ground they're holding, so it is a defeat. But it's different from the defeat of the previous year at the Battle of Long Island. It's not a rout. The Continentals withdraw in good order. And Washington is looking to fight Howe again as soon as he can find f favorable circumstances. So that long-term army of lower-class guys, um, they're, they're showing a lot of potential. Uh, and they'll show even more potential as this campaign goes on. Again, I think it's the broader context, right? We, we tend to say, oh, the British won, they captured the field. But, but again, like Greg mentioned, it's understanding that Washington led a fighting retreat and maintained order throughout um, as his army pulled out. So yes, it was a defeat, the British took the field, but at the same time, it was one of the first times that the Americans really went toe to toe, fought for 10 or 12 hours and were not routed by the British. But it's all a matter of perspective because words coming down from the Hudson that Horatio Gates is defeating John Burgoyne on the battlefield, Washington loses again. So there are people in Congress saying, maybe we've got the wrong guy in charge and Washington is conscious of that. Are there other battles after Brandywine before the British take Philadelphia or does Brandywine really settle the matter? I wouldn't say so, would you? No, no. of course not. Um, you, have the, you have the Battle of the Clouds, um, which is a battle so to speak, but it's also more of a skirmish where it's a, it's a fighting and fleeing um, type engagement. And, you know, again, keeping in mind the time of year, this was September in southeastern Pennsylvania. It's hurricane season. So, you know, it's, it's essentially like they pulled the tarp out to use a baseball reference where, you know, they wanted to. Both Washington was willing and I think that um, Howe was willing to re-engage like they had at Brandywine. But with the circumstances of muddy roads and pulling wagon and moving men, that large-scale battle just couldn't materialize. This nor'easter slams into the two armies. That's why they call it the Battle of the Clouds. And the weapons back then, uh, with the black powder, uh, if they get wet, they don't shoot. That's why Oliver Cromwell, a century earlier, had told his, his Puritan roundheads during the English Civil War, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. <laughs> and they're not keeping their powder dry, especially the, the Continentals. And Washington can't afford to engage if his men's weapons don't shoot. Let's talk a little bit about where we sit now in the topic of, of today's episode. Uh, what kind of a place was this in the 18th century and what is Paoli Tavern? Well, so Chester County at, in the 18th century was really one of the frontiers of North America. It, you know, it's hard to imagine that today we're about 20, 25 miles from Philadelphia, but in the 18th century, that, that's a day's travel. So we really were at the more or less Western extent of, of the colonies. And so where we're sitting, it, it, it was farm field. There, you know, we're, we're sitting, you can see the, um, the burial behind us. We're at the junction between two landowners and you had Cromwell Pierce to the west and you had the Ezekiel Bowen to the east. And both these men were, were patriots. They were loyal to the um, patriot cause. And I think that's partially why Wayne chose this place to camp is that 
you know, he didn't want to be camping where there were Tories prevalent or on a Tory property that they would give themselves away. Paoli Tavern uh, was named for someone that a 21st century American <laughs> would consider an unlikely hero. He's Pasquale Paoli. And he was the head of the rebellious government on the island of Corsica, which had risen up against the rule of the Kingdom of Naples. And they made it so tough for Naples to hold on to Corsica that Naples sold the island to the French. And the French came in in 1768, and Paoli led the resistance. Uh, eventually, the tide turns against him. He flees to England, because England is France's natural enemy. And since he's an enemy of France, he's a revolutionary that the English like. And this is before our revolution, so he celebrated throughout the English-speaking world, and some entrepreneur decided to name his uh, tavern here after, after General Paoli. I think it's important, too, to discuss briefly the, the role that taverns play, you know, socially, economically, and during the period of the revolution, where, you know, this was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-social media. So how did you get your information? And one of the ways to do that was to go to the tavern. And different taverns had different ideologies, like, like Greg was mentioning. You know, the Paoli Tavern was this revolutionary site. And so you see people congregating here to spread information, to share ideas, to discuss the politics of the day, which is, again, partially why taverns were important militarily. You can control the dissemination of information if you're controlling who is going in and out of these social spaces. They're located, too, at transportation choke points, crossroads, yep. uh, river crossings, ferries, etc. So lots of people pass through, and that's another way they get the information from all these different travelers and couriers and, and armies, what have you. Washington, as we've mentioned, has two losses. It's not looking good for Philadelphia. Congress flees. Uh, what is George Washington's plan after that? Washington wants to give the British hell. He detaches uh, the entire Pennsylvania Continental Line, two brigades, about 2,200 men, under Brigadier General Anthony Wayne, to come in behind the British, hoping to catch them when they try to cross the Schuylkill River. And he moves the rest of his army across the Schuylkill to cover the different crossing points. So he's kind of hoping that Wayne will, you know, come in behind the British and at least maybe get into their baggage train and get their supplies and ammunition and just make life a, a bit more miserable for them. If they can do more damage, even better, but he's setting up a kind of a, a pincers. Uh, so he's trying to trap the British. And again, it's important to understand the context of the 18th century that, you know, these weren't just, you know, 10,000 men on the march or the 2,200 that uh, Wayne was in charge of. It's their wagons. It's the um, women that women camp followers as well that there were supplies. These were essentially cities on the move. When you consider, you know, the British Army being about 15,000 men and the population of Philadelphia is the largest in the colonies is 30,000. That, that's a large city on the move. So you need those supplies, not just to fight war, but to make camp, to, to eat, and to survive on a, in a daily basis. Yeah, there's not a Wawa every five miles, right. so either you carry it with you or you take it from the locals. Food plays the same in everyone's stomach, right? Well, it does, and especially in war, because again, these people are exerting themselves. They're not just marching. You've got light infantry out acting as flankers, they're moving at the trot. You've got hundreds, if not thousands, of horses and oxen that are, are carrying human beings or pulling heavy transport, and they've got to be fed too. Anthony Wayne's an interesting figure. He'll go on to be called Mad Anthony Wayne for, for reasons we'll talk about. Was he the right man for a, a mission like this? Well, think about why Washington selected him. He was a local Pennsylvanian, and so he knew the area, he knew what the, the population was like. So in that sense, I think Washington selected him based on that type of knowledge that he had of the community, of the land, and then also because he is, you know, he's a gutsy guy, right? He's willing to go with 2,200 men and face the rear of an army of over 15,000 men. So. He, he's got the, the chutzpah, if you would. <laughs> yeah, he's highly aggressive. Uh, of course, he doesn't know that Washington crosses the Schuylkill, right. so he doesn't know he's on his own on this side of the river, but he's waiting for about 20 or 100 Maryland militia to join him and, and more or less double his numbers. But uh, as Matt says, he's from the area. In fact, his home uh, is about a mile or so yeah, from far. here. So uh, this, this is his hood. It's his backyard. And so again, you know, think about that in terms of how he's, 
you know, viewing this. This is his hometown, more or less, that he's not going to let the British just come in and, you know, ravage the community, that he, he has this personal tie to the land that probably makes him fight a little bit harder than others might. And that would be the same of his, of his troops, too, because yep. they're all Pennsylvanians. Correct. You mentioned his troops. How many people did he have under his command? And as historians, how do we, how do we find that material? Well, he had about, uh, according to, to the best works, 2,200. Um, uh, two brigades of infantry, I think three to four regiments per brigade. He also has a four-gun artillery battery and a couple of troops of light dragoons. And, and the numbers come from looking at various returns, muster returns and things like that that get uh, uh, prepared every day or almost every day by military commands and forwarded to headquarters. And then a lot of this stuff uh, ends up in archives uh, for historians to unearth and and decipher. Not all of it survives, uh, but we work with what we have. Now, controversy surrounds this battle. One of the first is where Anthony Wayne puts his army. So where does he put them in relation to the British that he's, that he's tailing? Well, he's about two miles away from where the British are camped in Tredyffrin. And, you know, one of the things that Wayne was later court-martialed for was not providing for a defensible location. But if you read what Reed, uh, Wayne himself was saying, he, he thought his de position was defensible. He saw that he was on a higher position than where the British were. He had pickets out. I think he set up over six pickets to keep track of the British movements as they would possibly be coming into camp if, if that was what they decided to do. And I think an intriguing facet here with, with the whole idea of Wayne's encampment is this is pre-Valley Forge. This is pre-Von Steuben coming in and creating a regular uh, encampment that we would see throughout the rest of the, the engagements. So I think with that context as well is that, you know, we don't really have a sense of what Wayne would envision a proper encampment. So him saying I'd set up in a proper encampment doesn't necessarily mean that it was a proper encampment or what we might consider a proper encampment as well. But Wayne has to hug the enemy because that's part of his mission. Mm -hmm. If they start moving toward the Schuylkill, he's got to come in behind them and, and hit a vulnerable spot. But he and he, and he does move his camp a bit uh, when he gets certain alarms and, and indications. I mean, the British planned to hit him the day before this battle actually occurred, but he, he moved because he heard that, that they were getting ready, getting ready to make a move. But he can't go too far because uh, General William Smallwood with the Maryland militia is looking for him in this area. And if Wayne goes five miles away, they'll never rendezvous, and both forces, the British could destroy them in detail. It's a, it's a fine line that he had to walk. You know, he wanted to be close enough and be able to strike if need be, but he also needed to be reactionary should they be able to strike him. But he also wanted to be far enough away that, he, you know, if the British were to attack, he would have time to uh, rally his men and move out if need be. And he has scouts out yep. and he'll post uh, picket posts, uh, uh, reinforced guard detachments, uh, most of them at least a mile out from his camp. So he's taking the standard precautions. He is not just lying under a tree napping. The British will locate Wayne's camp. Do we know how they did that or? Well, so it, you know, this is again, part of the lore of the, the Paley massacre is that there's different stories depending on who you ask. But what it was is, you know, the British were able to reconnoitre um, locals that knew where the British or where the Americans were camped. And so they were able to capture them and more or less forcibly push them to tell them where the Americans were camped. They're also loyalists with the British yeah. who are willingly giving them information. The sheriff of Chester County was a loyalist. Um, so the British have, have that source of intelligence. They're sending out their scouts. They have a, a pretty uh, good mounted contingent, the 16th Light Dragoons. And uh, when they get a general fix on Wayne, uh, um, some hours before they move on this battlefield, they'll send out several companies of light infantry uh, to uh, confirm that the Continentals are here. On the British side, can we talk about their commander, Charles Gray, a little bit? Charles Gray is the son of a baronet. That means his father was called Sir. He's born in the north of England. Enters the British Army, I think, around the age of 19. Uh, he'll serve in the, in the Seven Years' War, and he's one of these up-and-comers. He's on the staff of the Duke of Brunswick, who commands combined British and German force in North Germany. And then he participates in the capture of uh, Belle Isle along the French coast. He ends the war around 1762, helping to capture Havana, Cuba, from the uh, 
from the Spanish, who are an ally of the French. Um, and then at the start of the war, he's an aide-de-camp to George III. So you know, that's like being the aide of the president. Uh, he gets sent to America. He arrives here in 1777. Uh, he's a major general. He's given command of a brigade. He has a, a young aide named Captain John Andre, who will be involved in turning Benedict Arnold into a traitor three years later. Um, and um, because he's known as a daring, responsible, get things done officer who the king likes, General Howe gives him a special assignment. And also, too, he's trying to make a name for himself, right? Because the, the British Army is a very socially stratified community. So until you have that major victory, people might still look down on you or might not view you as being a competent general. So he's still, even though he has that title, he's still looking to make a name for himself. When Wayne is ultimately identified as being here, what steps do the British take, especially Gray? Well, uh, Howe gives Gray a command of about 12 to 1400 men, depends on what numbers you look at. Um, he has the 2nd uh, Battalion of Light Infantry. These are elite picked troops. Uh, they're taken from the different British infantry regiments. They're the, the, the fastest moving, fastest thinking, boldest men. Uh, and, and the British really use them for their advance work. Um, he also has the 44th Regiment of Foot and the 42nd Royal Highland Regiment, the Black Watch, Scottish Highlanders. So as I say, it's about 12 to 1400 men, about a dozen light dragoons. Uh, and he's sent to hit Wayne. Another column is sent out under Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Musgrave. He has two British regiments with about 500 men. And, and they're hoping to be able to kind of catch Wayne between them. Doesn't work out that way. Luckily for Wayne, things are going to be bad enough uh, because it is a night operation and that's hard to coordinate. But uh, Howe sends about, uh, as I say, about uh, 1,700, 1,600, 1,700 men out to eliminate this threat, or at least neutralize it. And, and they're hand-selected men. The, the, these are the best of the best from the British Army. It, it would be like the equivalent of the Green Berets today in, in our military, that these guys were the most highly trained. Um, and, they, and again, speaking to being a, a night operation, you know, it's communication's difficult, right, in the, in the dark, and especially when you're doing a basically a surprise attack. You want, you want to maintain order very well. So these guys were highly trained and highly skilled. And Gray issues uh, some interesting order. I mean, first of all, a night operation is rare. And that's one reason why Wayne's people aren't as prepared for what comes as would have happened in, in broad daylight. Uh, you know, it's just very difficult to attempt. Uh, and because of the things that can go wrong, Gray says, okay, I want every musket unloaded. And just to make sure nobody shoots uh, and, and betrays our approach, uh, I want you to take the flints out. He'll get the nickname No Flint Gray because of that. Uh, but also, there'll be no friendly fire. At night, when it's confused and every shape in front of you looks black, you don't want people shooting weapons. Anybody who shoots a weapon is the enemy. Go to that, where that flash was and kill them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's ingenious and it's ruthless. And that's what war is. And speaking of the ruthless aspect, the hopes was by not firing your weapons in the chaos of the attack, the Americans would see the muzzle flashes of their advanced guards and then begin shooting upon themselves. So it's not just that the British are coming in with their bayonets and swords and you know putting, putting men to sword that way, but also then that the Americans would be cutting each other down with friendly fire. So it's an added layer of you know, ruthlessness that was created by Gray. Was the Patriot Army prepared for this at all? Well, uh, Wayne is not caught sleeping. I mean, he has, he has he, in fact, two people come in to his camp at least. One, a militia officer uh, who had been serving the previous year. Uh, and they report that the British are coming. And uh, Wayne uh, uh, himself had been out reconnoitering uh, by horseback uh, before it got dark. But as, uh, as soon as Wayne uh, got back and, and heard about these intelligence reports, he's on his horse riding along uh, the camps yelling, turn out, boys, the lads are coming, meaning the British. So he, and according to his officers, it took, took it to his fellows five minutes to get out and form up. So th these fellows are, are, are good soldiers and, and they're not, they're not uh, you know, again, not lying down, not, not caught on their backs and, and they form up and, and Wayne is just waiting to see if the threat materializes, how to react to that. As I said, he had six picket posts out, most of them out a mile, uh, four of them on the roads. Um, that, uh, well, four of them on the road that led to the British camp. So he's 
trying to take all the security measures he can for the situation he's in. The pieces are in place. Let's talk about the Battle of Paoli. Well, the British uh, come on uh, along the road and they encounter a picket post. Uh, the the, the uh, Pennsylvania Continentals, when they can distinguish shapes coming out of the darkness, open fire. And then, uh, according to the British accounts, the Redcoats go in with their bayonets and, ex and massacre the picket post. Uh, some people get away, uh, the British are able to get to a second picket post, and they exterminate that too after uh, the Pennsylvanians fire. Um, uh, Gray knows that his, his presence has been revealed, he yells to the light infantry, dash on! And in they go. They, they uh, form line, they uh, charge their bayonets, they give a loud huzzah, uh, which was uh, unnerving, and, and they start heading toward the Pennsylvanians. Now, in the meantime, Wayne, having heard these shots from his outposts, he uh, takes his last regiment in the column. He forms his, reg his, his, his division up into a column to leave the battlefield, to get out of there. But he takes the last regiment in the line of march, the 1st Pennsylvania, and sends them back to delay the enemy. Unfortunately, most of the men in the 1st Pennsylvania are carrying long rifles, weapons that are not equipped to carry bayonets and take longer than the common musket to fire. So they get off a shot and then the, 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 the light infantry is on top of them with their bayonets and they break right through and they keep on going till they hit the rear, rear of Wayne's column, the 7th Pennsylvania and Hartley's additional regiment and uh, just tear into these guys. Some of the, the Pennsylvania officers are turning their platoons about to fire and when they fire, they're resisting, but that lets the British know just where the enemy is. So the, the bayonets come in. Uh, so these 500 light infantrymen slam into the back of Wayne's column. And pretty soon you've got confusion, you've got disorder, you've got death, you've got mayhem. This is close quarter fighting. People are being stabbed, people are being slashed with swords. Uh, panic starts developing, the column starts breaking up. And then the next British wave, about 300 men from the 44th foot, come storming into the field, and eventually the third British wave, the 42nd, comes storming into the field, and things just get worse. Uh, Wayne uh, you know, had ordered his division to march off the field, uh, but his artillery got to uh, a fence opening ahead of the infantry, and a cannon broke down. So they're marching off, and suddenly, bam, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a roadblock, uh, it's a traffic jam, and the Redcoats are coming in. Uh, so it is, uh, everything that can go wrong is going wrong. It's not that Wayne isn't ready. The British, the tempo of their attack, the ferocity of their attack, it's like the German Blitzkrieg in France in 1940. It just moves faster and hits harder than, than, than he expects. Well, speaking of the fence line too, um, that goes back to what we were just talking about a little bit earlier with you know, Washington giving orders, do not tear down people's fences, take care of their property. So here you have Wayne listening to that order from Washington, which then slowed his retreat, the cannon breaks down, and which just could possibly lead to the, the more slaughter, so to speak. Are these uh, failures of command or just victims of circumstance for the Patriots? I think victims of circumstance. Um... You know, Wayne uh, is supposed to uh, maintain an aggressive stance. He's not supposed to go henny-penny, the sky is falling when he gets an alarm. Uh, but again, this night attack by the British is unprecedented. Uh, they don't know what's falling on them. And, and the British, in a way, don't know what they're going to be administering either because they've never really done anything like this before. It really shows how well-disciplined they were and how well Gray understood the tactical situation uh, and, and how smart he was in, in giving the orders that he did, as, at least as far as winning a military engagement is concerned. How does Gray finish this battle? Well, the, the, the Pennsylvanians, you know, most of them do get away. Most of them do get away. I mean, American casualties uh, estimates vary from about 250 to 300. Uh, 53 or 52 dead are found on the battlefield and buried here, in fact, in the mound behind us. Um, the British take about 70 prisoners, they say, 40 of whom are so badly wounded they kind of leave them in houses in the area. Uh, and then other Americans who suffered wounds get off the field. So Wayne loses maybe 15% of his force. Uh, one of his officers throws a rope around that disabled cannon and drags it out of the way so the logjam 
is opened and his troops are able to get out that way. And others are just going cross country. They aren't, they aren't staying in that column to be bayoneted. So Wayne's uh, division is scattered. It's not destroyed. And Wayne's division wants revenge. In fact, a British officer who fought here, Lieutenant Martin Hunter, said that afterwards he and his comrades didn't really sleep a sound night uh, because they knew the Pennsylvanians would, would seize the first opportunity to, to uh, ex ex exact uh, uh, vengeance. Matt, we usually have a lot of paper pushers on this show. You're one of the few archaeologists. Uh, what's the physical remains of a battle like this? How do you look at that? Well, so there, there's different methods for this. Um, for looking at the battlefield itself, metal detecting has been a very lucrative way to identify, you know, the, the lead shot that was being fired. Um, from this field itself, we've actually found 18th century coins along the path of retreat that Wayne's men were taking. So I think that helps speak to the chaos of the night that, you know, if you, if you dropped your money, you're not bending over to pick it up. You're, you're just hightailing it out of there. Um, so we're, we're looking at it that way through metal detecting. Um, we've also done different uh, geophysical surveys where you're essentially looking at different soil anomalies. And we've done a magnetometry survey where you look at the magnetism of the soil, which really can speak to, to several things. One large metal artifacts, so if there were a cannon, which is unlikely, but it, it's possible, but also it can identify areas of burnt soil. So as the British came through the camp, it was a camp, so they had their campfires going, so we could find evidence of that. But also the British burned the huts or the wigwams that the Americans had built for to keep their powder dry. So you have that burning there, high intense fire, it's possible that we can identify where the camp was located based on these uh, variations in the soil that, that remain. Uh, part of the uh, latter phase of the battle, the British will pursue Wayne's men for about one mile or two. And uh, as they get out uh, away from the, this battlefield, uh, Wayne's retreating troops will bump into their reinforcements. Uh, Brigadier General William Smallwood and Colonel Mordecai Gist with about 2,100 uh, Maryland militia will be coming up and they got all these Pennsylvania regulars bumping into them and get out of our way. You know, and so they're kind of confused. And the British, uh, some of them apparently did not unload their muskets. And when they're in the pursuit mode, they start firing. And, and they start firing into, into the Maryland militia. One uh, Marylander is, is shot in the middle of the road. And that is too much for these raw, untrained citizen soldiers to take. So a lot of them just throw down their muskets and run for their lives. In fact, Smallwood will complain that about a thousand of his men uh, uh, desert, and he's disgusted by that. Uh, so that Maryland force is, is uh, you know, comes apart um, in the aftermath of this battle. So it's, it's, a, it's a real uh, strong uh, shock that the British administer to their foes. I think it's also important to note how a lot of information that we have is from the, the primary documents. And those maps can, are great tools to help figure out the physics mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the battlefield, but those maps are static, right? They, show, they generally show the area of movement, but one thing that we do as archeologists is try and take those static maps and make them dynamic to highlight where these um, battles were actually taking place and how the men were actually moving across the field and where they were moving across the field. So, you know, one thing that we do as archaeologists is really try and bring it to life a little bit more so than you can get from just those primary resources. And the great thing about battlefield archaeology is that it's a great corrective for human memory because when you're engaged in battle and then the next day or 20 years later, you try to reconstruct what happens and you're right, well, we advanced 40 yards and fired 20 rounds and then went this way or that way. The archaeologists could come and say, well, you know, from the impacted uh, bullets here, uh, we think this was probably a firing line. Shots are being aimed at it. Uh, but it's not where the guy said they were. <laughs> kind of thing. So maybe that written account, uh, he, he may have misremembered things, especially something that's happening at night and happening so quickly, too. Uh, so archaeology is, is a great way of, uh, of firming up the evidence and, and allowing us to make a smart read of the written memories. Uh, what kind of archeological surveys have been done here, Matt? Uh, so we've done a metal detecting survey. Um, we found impacted musket balls. One of the things we need to take a closer look at, but what we're trying to understand is that the British had 
um, their brown best muskets and those fired a larger caliber ball than what the Americans were firing. So we can then determine were the British actually flintless, right? That's one of the myths here is that, you know, it was a bayonet raid, but maybe we can find evidence that the British were actually firing their weapons. And so we've looked at that. We've identified some 18th century coins, like I just mentioned, where, you know, it speaks to these men in chaos, just fleeing and dropping everything, so to speak, so that they can, they can move it out, move outside of the, the chaos. Um, we've also, you know, I'm, one of my personal interests in this battlefield is understanding the, how the conflict affects the greater community. So we've done actually excavations at the Bowen House where, you know, it's not on many maps from the 18th century and it was right along the path of the British entering the camp. So what, what can that tell us about the conflict? You know, it, maybe there's direct evidence, but even the indirect evidence can, can tell us a lot about, you know, not just, you know, this conflict, but also conflict more broadly in the 18th century. Uh, so, uh, Greg, what's the aftermath of this battle? How do the armies make sense of this melee? Well, the Continentals uh, will admit that uh, this was a defeat. Uh, Wayne will insist that he was not taken by surprise, that he was not derelict in duty. He'll demand a, a court-martial, a court of inquiry to vindicate his reputation. Uh, the British are satisfied that they've eliminated a threat from their rear. Uh, they've inflicted a, a good number of casualties, as I say, something like maybe 250, 300, at, at minimal cost. They have only three dead and uh, maybe a half a dozen wounded. Uh, and they're free to cross the Schuylkill and they'll take Philadelphia uh, a few days later. Um, but there's that lingering uh, uh, anger left between, uh, left among Wayne's troops. They want payback. And when they spearhead Washington's attack uh, down the Germantown Pike on October 4th, 1777, they are screaming, have at the bloodhounds. That's the, the nickname they gave it the, to the British light infantry. Have at the bloodhounds, revenge Wayne's affair. Now, the controversy of this battle lingers on now two centuries later. Why were people calling this a massacre as opposed to just a battle? Well, I think it's, it's, there's, it's a multifaceted answer to this question, but I think one of them is that it's a way to rally support, just like the Boston Massacre was a way to rally support for, for the um, revolution. Having just lost Brandywine, just lost at the Battle of the Clouds, or you know, not having a full-scale conflict, and then losing again here, it's a way to say, hey, look, we're not losing because we're inferior. The British are using these essentially barbaric tactics. They're coming in at night. They're using bayonets. You know, it was almost ungentlemanly. So to call it a massacre is a way to drum up support to say, you know, look at how the British are treating us. You know, they're treating us as almost subhuman. They're not treating us like gentlemen or like civilians. They're, they're treating us, everyone, as, as combatants. So I think that title of massacre is a way to really drum up support for the revolution and maintain, you know, a sense of mission within the army itself that, you know, they massacre us. So let's take it now to them. And there probably were some atrocities in the heat of battle. Uh, again, it's at night. And remember, the British hit Wayne's 2000 at first with 500 men. So they're tearing into these Continentals, and they want to make sure anybody who goes down stays down. It's not going to get up and shoot you in the back. So they may have stabbed somebody more than once. Uh, the British-like cavalry with these long broadswords are inflicting ugly wounds. Some of the people who get away are badly, uh, badly. Uh, uh, mutilated, as are some of the bodies that are found afterwards. Um, but again, you know, when we look at a, a modern example, when SEAL Team 6 took out Osama bin Laden, they didn't take any combatants as prisoners. They made sure that anybody they passed who had a weapon was dead, and I think the same kind of fighting frenzy took hold here. It's not to defend it, but these kinds of things happen in war. Uh, is it fair to say that the events that happened here were a political gift for the Patriots on a, on a level of propaganda maybe after? Well, I, I think so, just because, you know, we, we lose track of this over, you know, the 200 some odd years since the conflict. But speaking to the memorial that's behind us, that's the second oldest war memorial in the United States. So I think that tells you something very important that, you know, just 40 years after the battle and before really this whole concept of memorialization or mnemonics associated with military conflict happened, it was happening here. And so again, I think that speaks to 
how the community felt about it, not just the army itself, but how the greater community felt about it. That, you know, this is the site where, you know, it wasn't just an attack on the Continental Army, it's an attack on our way of life. And so that aspect of it is certainly a rallying cry it, and certainly has become, you know, remember Paoli, living on in lore. And the fact that Washington is not broken by this. I mean, he will launch an attack on the British camps, a surprise attack at Germantown on October 4th, 1777, less than two weeks later. That's where the Pennsylvanians were yelling, Revenge Wayne's affair. But the fact, even though that's not an American victory, the fact that he's able to surprise the British and give them a rough time, that also plays well in France, along with the news of Saratoga, and convinces the French, this revolution has the potential of winning. If we invest in it, we're gonna hurt our British enemies, and, and that's a smart thing to do. Can we talk about some of the highlights of this particular battlefield? There's a lot of, I think, interesting things we could talk about. Well, like I just mentioned, it's the second oldest memorialized battlefield in the country, which, which in and of itself speaks volumes. Um, but also where we're sitting now is on what's called the Paoli Memorial Grounds. And so it has not just been a site for remembrance of this specific battle, but also of you know, the Americans who have fallen in all conflicts over the last 230-odd years. And you'll see this play out too, where the Paoli Memorial Day Parade is one of the longest continuously running Memorial Day parades in the country. So again, it's not just speaking to this battle and this conflict, but this greater sense of patriotism that was born here. And it's, it's a place that conveys the sense of sacrifice um, that Americans uh, so revere. Uh, reminds us uh, the price of the freedoms that we enjoy. And that's been an important part of the American identity from, from the very beginning. Uh, winning independence was not easy. Uh, it took a lot of blood, it took a lot of sweat. Uh, a lot of people had their property destroyed or stolen. Uh, and um, so a place like this kind of brings those trials together and allows Americans to leave with a, with a greater sense of unity and a greater sense of strength. And also too, you know, we're in southeastern Pennsylvania, we're in now what is suburban Philadelphia, and with urban and suburban sprawl, it's very unprecedented to have the amount of space that we have preserved here at the Paley Battlefield. So, you know, having 40 acres of undeveloped land, again, speaks to this concept of how important this space is considered within the community, that this is sacred space. This isn't, you know, oh, we'll just turn it into a housing development. This is, this is where 50 men lost their lives, and that, that speaks to our story as Americans. And it testifies, again, to uh, the place that this ground uh, holds in the eyes of the local community. Uh, the good people have worked hard to preserve this battlefield and interpret this battlefield and draw more attention to this battlefield. Uh, it's a story that's repeated all over America, uh, but again, it, it helps to make this place feel special. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.